Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa. That's me. Hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short films. In our back and forth, you pitched me the idea of deliberate controversy. So what does that mean to you? Great art should provoke. It isn't up to people to tell the artist what they want. So looking at at films where the filmmaker seems to have gone out of their way to be deliberately provocative for one reason or another. And the films we'll be watching are Dragged Across Concrete, Last Tango in Paris, Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS, Basic Instinct, Monty Python's Life of Brian, The Last Temptation of Christ, Bamboozled, and 2,000 Mules. The bottom line is I was there to watch Naked People. Yeah. And looking at it from these eyes, I'm struck by a number of details technically that make Basic Instinct sort of a terrific movie. Jan DeBont, the cinematographer, he brought, oh. it, he brought it and he brought it hard. Yeah, the absolutely. movie looks terrific. Absolutely. What an awesome interrogation room. That whole chain link fence on the ceiling thing looks so rad. The other important crew member is Jerry Goldsmith. The score for this film brought to mind his score for Total Recall. But then, of course, the star power of Michael Douglas getting himself Jim ripped, getting himself spray tanned, <laughs> and displaying his, his body. Yeah, his little flat little butt, you know, to resemble his daddy Kirk, who had that big brawny body. He, uh, and he looks great. Yeah. What I did instantly when I was in the middle of some of those sequences, pause, Wikipedia. The dude, at the time this movie comes out, was 48 years old. Yeah, yeah, he was like 47 when they shot it. Yeah. I'm 49 now. And I've never looked like this, even when I was an 18 year old. Yeah, right. I've never. So he did his work in deep middle age. And then Sharon Stone is breathtaking. Mm -hmm. I had forgotten how beautiful she is and how free she is in displaying her body. Now, I think retrospectively, we can retcon this movie with subsequent interviews these stars have given about their involvement in it. And I think she's on the record as saying she didn't know she would be revealed quite as fully right. as the movie reveals there, her. There's, this, there's a lot made of this story. Right. Because Paul Verhoeven says, no, no, she knew what she was doing. Right, it's scripted. Mm-hmm. She was there. We asked her to do things. She didn't raise flags. And, of course, our experience of what intimacy and sex is in a movie and on television is much different in the age of intimacy coordinators who've really come in to be uh, an advocate for the performer to make Mm. sure they don't feel exploited. I have to imagine that Sharon Stone in her early 30s as an actress, who'd had a string of small roles before this really broke through, was probably put into a lot of applied pressure. Listen, we cast you because you are a conventionally beautiful blonde woman, but we got to see all the goods. Because, you know, she was a a little older than women typically are when they become a big deal, but Mm -hmm. she's given this... You know this this huge opportunity. 
we get a, a medium shot where we see all of her, where she begins to uncross her legs. Then we oh, get a the cut. interview scene, right, right? Right. Then we get a cut to a close up. Up her when, skirt, where there are no underpants, right. we see the little her. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's a separate shot. you got to light for that. Yeah, otherwise you don't see anything. Uh, and Paul Verhoeven's, you know, or part of, the, part of the story is that, you know, she had underwear on, but Paul Verhoeven said it was bouncing the light back, so they, you know, wanted to get rid of it. To, so part of me was like, well, how could you not know? Because the move was so sort of deliberate, yeah. and this shot obviously had to be set up to see that. But at the same time, like, you know, she's not over in Video Village. So she, she she's not looking at the frame. Right. So she's not seeing quite, like, how well, maybe she's close in they She's not are. watching the playback. And right. she's probably not invited offset because she's got to stay there for right. the lighting kits to do its job. So th- I think this is going to continue to be one of, the, one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in cinema history. This movie has a lot of really skilled supporting performances. Oh, it, it was a, a cavalcade <laughs> of excellent. some of the greatest uh, character actors of the time. Right. I mean, you had Mitch Pileggi in there, right. Skinner on The X-Files, Stephen Toblowski, who's been in right. basically everything. And in the principal performers, you've got Michael Douglas reprising the role that he made famous from the streets of San Francisco. Not literally the role, but there he is again, a more mature detective, returning to those main streets to explore the hilly city. This upstart actress named Sharon Stone, as you mentioned, who wasn't the first pick, nor the second or the third, but finally gets this plum role. Yeah. And then you get Michael Douglas's character, Nick Curran's partner, played by George Zunda. He's a portly dude. He's friendly. You trust him. Mm-hmm. He sees through things rather easily. For myself, I think I first noticed him in um, Deer Hunter. There are two important other women characters. Jeanine Triplehorn mm-hmm. plays Dr. Beth Garner who's the one-time sort of off-again lover of Nick Curran, Douglas's character, and she's the psychologist for the SFPD. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and then this character, Catherine Trammell, that Sharon Stone plays, she's got a girlfriend named Roxy, played by Lelani Sorrell. This is all saying more than is necessary because I think I want to just communicate to you that I see this movie as bad, but it's a very gratifying form of bad because all of the craft has been brought to a high level of great polish and sheen. And the actors, despite a script that's just riven with dumb stuff, they just choose to go ahead and deliver everything straight. And we're doing the job of saying, this is kitsch and it's dreadful, but I'm enjoying myself so much. Yeah, I I actually, it's funny because I, I also, one thing that stuck out to me is that wow, this might as well be double indemnity or something. Like, it's really hitting all of these tropes, but, like, not in a way that's, you know, ham-fisted or obvious. You know, I compared to something like Sin City, it acts like, oh, it's like a hard-boiled 1940s thing. And I'm like, no, it's not. No, no movie from the 40s is like this. I don't, I don't care what you were trying to do, but this movie really seemed to nail it for me. You hear the term, like, neo-noir, and a lot of things get sort of described in that way. But this is probably the greatest example of a true neo-noir that I've ever seen, and that it, it seemed to do everything exactly like it would have been done in the 40s. I just watched The Killers, the Burt Lancaster uh-huh. debut from 46 with Ava Gardner. That's exactly fresh in my memory. 
And that's often held up as like the prototype of the noir style. Mm -hmm. I don't consider it its own genre, but it is a distinct style Mm -hmm. and way of storytelling. And the only thing this movie, Basic Instinct, does not do, that prototypical noir style thing the killers does, is the swishy narrative that goes back all over the place with flashbacks and the voiceover Mm -hmm. that bridges those. This is a movie told in linear fashion. But, like The Killers and many other noir classics, the smartest person on screen is a woman, Catherine Tremell. Right. The second partist on screen is another woman, Dr. Bev Garner. The third smartest person, who's definitely dimmer, is the male hero, Nick Curran, played by Douglas. And it's in that order. Mm -hmm. The whole movie spins around the dynamics of these women manipulating these men who are thinking with both heads and can't see up from down. Happens at night a lot. Crime is explored and it's kind of giddy. It seems like a nasty business, but if you're on the investigative side, it's nothing but doing a big puzzle. How fascinating. And it draws us right in. And the way our lead character sort of dances right on that line of good and bad. Yeah. And, I mean, he's a cop. He's He's a good guy, you know, on paper. But he's so close to going over the line, like, all he's, the time. He's a fallen guy, too. He's a right, drug addict. He's right. a drunk. He's shot a bunch of people right. in legally cleared activity as a police officer. They were collateral damage to the investigations he was doing as a narcotics officer, as a younger man. In other words, he's he's a goofed-up, bruised guy right. with We're, a nickname Shooter. Right, right, right. <laughs> you just the, the, the perfect... The perfect, like, noir protagonist, kind of. And they point out in the course of the investigations that this woman, Catherine Trammell, is fantastically wealthy. This is in 1992 dollars when the movie's released. She's reportedly worth $110 million. I did some back-of-the-envelope math. That's, like, closing in on a half billion. And you see it. She lives well. That house. Yeah, forget it. It's exquisite surroundings. So the whole spin of this movie is an interesting take on this old noir style, as you point out. And it's also an interesting take on dressing up the really low material that one would get in the straight-to-video action movies that were then coming out quite a lot of, and also the straight-to-video pornography industry, which Mm -hmm. has a lot of good-looking people showing complete plumbing. This movie restricts the complete plumbing, but it shows marquee stars. Michael Douglas had won an Oscar a few years before. Sharon Stone is gorgeous to anybody's conventional standard and remains so today. And all of that's dressed up with millions of dollars of lavish treatment of costumes, terrific lighting. Clearly, everything's rehearsed just so to make it look perfect. And, of course, you can't do this in straight-to-video action movies starring Steven Seagal knockoffs like Michael Dudikoff and their ilk. And you you (laughs) certainly don't do this, even if you're at Vivid Video in that part of the industry. You can't spend that kind of time. Or, Or money. When it gets into its violence, it is bloody. Mm-hmm. When it gets into its sex, it is sexy. Yeah. And I'm surprised, especially given the sensitivities of the last 30 years since the movie was released, that the principal performers agreed to do all this. Yeah. On the other hand, I've long held this belief that if I'm a hot thing and my society tells me that I'm gorgeous, my society never has, by the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but if that were the word attached to this guy, Garrett, I feel like I owe it to myself and the world to make sure that I am seen in the glory of my yeah. youth, or in the case of Douglas in this movie, how much I can claw back the glory of youth just as I leave yeah. that possibility in, in purest middle age. Because, wow, he must now you know, get stretched out on his couch and freeze frame some of those nude scenes that he doesn't think, I looked really good. Yeah, yeah. 
now that he's pushing 80, I mean, that would be a really nice document mm-hmm. of himself. Mm-hmm. She, the most thankless role in the movie is Triple Horn's job as Beth Garner. All she runs around is get, she gets slapped around, disagreed with, argued with, <laughs> assaulted nearly by virtually everybody on screen. But even she gets the opportunity to say, see how great I look in those clothes? And in a couple of scenes, without them. Yeah. And of course, now she's in her deep 50s. Yeah. You're never going to recover what you were at a certain age. And so I mean to say this movie is a trophy to the gorgeousness yeah. of its principal cast you, who frequently took off their clothes. If you got it, flaunt it. You know? <laughs> and if you don't, that's fun too. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> well, it, it's funny too because, you know, I sort of, particularly with Sharon Stone, like I, I found it sort of, it seemed empowering to me. She was such a powerful character in the film. And so ready and willing to use all of the uh, tools in her toolbox to get to where she's got to go. Well, let's now bring this around to our writer, Joe Esterhaas, who had made a series of scripts for a series of sort of sexy thrillers in the 1980s and onward. And is kind of a wild man in the Hollywood scene of his times. He was known to have some disagreeable beliefs and lifestyle patterns, but he was also known to be heavily invested in the raw, Mm -hmm. the unbaked and uncooked parts of a human animal, the sex drive, the kill drive, the defense drive. There's a specific set of sequences in the movie where Catherine Tremell explains what she's all about. Are you sorry he's dead? Yeah. I liked fucking him. The fact that this woman, who is very, very in control of herself, as you point out, visually, she's always in control of herself, always very well put together. Oh, it looks amazing. Yeah. O- only with one sequence, where she's breaking down crying, is she actually vulnerable. Right. Otherwise, she's armored. She's ready to take things on. Even when she's not wearing clothes, her musculature is set up. She's always in a dominant position above her sex partners. She's physically bigger than a lot of people around her because the camera's put low. Leaving that aside, she also expresses things that are very blunt with her dialogue. And doesn't flinch. She doesn't even blink. She stares. So there's another detail. Not only is there a lot of profanity that I'd forgotten because this movie is swept up in thinking about all the nude bodies. The other thing that struck me as kind of giddily silly but also makes the movie happen is the amount of downtime in scenes while the characters are just dead-eyeing each other. There's a lot of it. I'm guessing that there's probably five to eight minutes worth of people saying something and then you watch them stare at the mm-hmm. other party receiving the remark, where I think an editor would move through it. This editor, who was celebrated for his work, and that's uh, Frank Uriosti. Uriosti. He was nominated for the Academy Award for his work. And I can see why, because there are sequences in this that move right along. But that value of making us just sit in a shot while these gorgeously coiffed and costumed people... Or nude people, well lit, say things to each other, yeah. and we just linger in that in that quiet, that silence. Right. That's kind of gone out of fashion. Oh and yeah, yeah. I mean, cut, 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 cut. That's what it's all about these days, you know. More often than not, and that also means that this movie is one where we're looking: Are we meant to treat this seriously? Right. And so, Paul Verhoeven, this guy is a fundamentally great artist of schlocky material that he raises up yeah. time and time again with wonderful technique and this sense that he's winking at you the whole way through. And for this movie, that winking happened in two areas. Over a long sense of reaction shots when people are dropping lines of dialogue where we really watch their eyes dilate as they stare at somebody, often in close-up. And then the other is in the deliberately crazed lines that Esther Haas has the characters say. There's cum stains all over the sheets. Very impressive. He got off before he got off. <laughs> also, too, I think 
I sort of always had kind of the most fun when I'm writing sort of detectives where they all talk to each other like that and they they all kind of have, you know, their own jargon and, you know, the way they, you know, say stuff that nobody would ever say in real life but sounds so tough and cool. Yeah, and I'm, I'm only in a limited way aware of the actual lives of police. But as you point out, this movie's really good at having breakthroughs in the case where all of the little details that put the thing in order spill over all at once because all of the detectives that we've met by association in the course of the investigation, all of them have a moment to say, this ice pick is sold in Kmart everywhere. Right. This transcript says she was in this person's class. That person teaching the class is now dead, spoken by all of the different participants in right. the bull session. And then we have Michael Douglas marching through, oh, that's what I thought. Right. And he hops in his car and, and he races yeah, off. One of the dicier areas this movie gets involved with is the relationship of Catherine and the various women that she fools around mm -hmm. with and the way that that's turned into a deviant kind of expression, especially when it gets connected with predation, drug use, yeah. <laughs> uh, various forms of polygamy, possession. Can you give me a, a thumbnail of what this movie's about? Yeah, this movie is about uh, Detective Nick Curran who finds himself uh, at the center of an investigation for of the murderer of a rock star where the prime suspect is a famous author who has detailed all of the specifics of the murder in a book that she's written. And as he deepens his investigation, we get tendrils of other side stories. But that, that's right. That's all yeah. that's happened. Yeah. Spoiler. When the movie ends, it appears that Nick's investigation has cleared Catherine, that she was indeed framed by a former friend and lover of hers, Beth, who she'd gone to school with at Berkeley. Around the edges, of course, there's Catherine's old lady, Roxy, who Nick characteristically calls Rocky. He's very clear about gendered norms. These are all red herrings, because in the conclusion of the movie, the spoiler is Catherine, again, having this wonderful orgasmic sexual moment with Nick, reaches for something, and then we get the big reveal just before credits that she's got an ice pick under the bed. It appears that she actually did mastermind all of the crimes that we've watched, which inform her deviant behavior going back years, and everybody else who's been harmed in the course of events, really every other character except for Nick, is killed in the course of what's happening. Mm. Catherine's in charge of it all. Another detail that just pleases me is how much this movie drives a hard bargain saying that educated people are nasty. <laughs> and, and, and lost in their learning and knowledge and don't have the real truth. A narrative that continues to this day. Right. <laughs> like, I don't know that it's ever had been uh, sort of more believable than today. Well, at police headquarters where the detectives are hanging out, figuring out what to do about Catherine and this whole investigation, they keep pointing out she went to Berkeley. She mm -hmm. went to Berkeley. She was a double major in literature and psychology yeah. because, you know, she can work on your mind and she writes stories about it. Now... I've met a lot of people who are that combination. Because you're an undergraduate who studies psychology doesn't mean jack, really. Right. It means that you did some study of psychology, which will be ejected from your brain within a few years while you get involved with a working circumstance, trying to earn money, all the things in life. The person who becomes useful in psychological manipulation is the person who becomes a therapist, who moves on past that mm. into more advanced studies and then begins to actually work on people. So the character on screen who, who embodies that is Beth, mm -hmm. the police psychologist. Right. She's gone on to that training. She's become a therapist. She works on people. That's how we meet her. 
that Nick has to go to office hours and be with his therapist and confess what's going on with him because he's under investigation with internal affairs. In other words, that Catherine is singled out as this mastermind because she attended Cal Berkeley <laughs> and earned a degree? <laughs> this movie is also filled with the psychobabble of people who have studied a psychology textbook, but that's as deep as their regard for the inner workings of the mind go. Mm. It's a wonderful scene late in the movie. When Nick, who's become unhinged, he's back to smoking, he's back to drinking. drinking. Beth invites him into a therapy session with two outsiders, and they want to ask him some questions. And he delivers this monologue. Oh, it was great. I don't remember how often I used to jerk off, but it was a lot. Number two, I wasn't pissed off my dad, even when I was old enough to know what he and mom were doing in the bedroom. Number three, I don't look in the toilet before I flush it. Number four, I haven't wet my bed for a long time. Number five... Why don't the two of you go fuck yourselves? I'm out of here. Does the crazy person know they're crazy? If you can, if you can say, "Hey, I think I'm crazy." Yeah, <laughs> or, aren't you in fact well? <laughs> so the movie just makes mockery of all of these things, very winningly and fast. Douglas delivers his lines, but I guess this helps me arrive at a complaint. I thought I was basically watching a father-daughter distance of age. Mm-hmm. That's not quite right, because no, yeah. I think he was 47 or so, as you yeah. pointed out. I think she was 33 or 34 yeah. at the time that they shot the movie, right. which he could have been her parent. I know what Hubert yeah, hits. Biologically, but, sure. But not quite the gooey you know, 18 to 25 years. That actually defines a generation. Right. That's what I thought was happening then. Now, what I think I'm noticing is that while he can be a skilled actor, he's mostly getting by in this movie by just pretending to be a good actor. <laughs> He's got a thing with his lip where he kind of grinds at it and chews on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And he gets by like, this is my serious pose. Which also informs the other observation about his performance. Which is the thing that gets you in the door, originally. She's the one who keeps you there because of all of the femme fatale and skin that we see. Right. I just didn't buy that these two performers, as these two characters, are really interested in each other. Mm -hmm. Not really. There's no impression they have an interior life. Everything is these really on-the-nose remarks not much reflection. So it doesn't seem these are people that you would enjoy talking to. They're so carefully choreographing their sex scenes to ensure that we buy it, Mm -hmm. cut, new angle. We buy it, cut, new angle. That I'm now afflicted with the knowledge they're not really doing much together except kind of dancing. Right. Their costume is minimal, sure. But that doesn't mean they're actually engaged in Congress. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I see through it much better now than I ever did when I was a younger guy. But then also, too, they have to cover up the artifice of the sex act. Because unless you're a a, a short bus or in the realm of the senses, this is not non-simulated sex. It's totally simulated. So, you know, you need a pillow here or a sheet there so that, you know, the audience can believe as much as possible that, you know, there's actual penetration happening when there is anything but. Let me be just sort of grumbly and reflective and nostalgic about young me seeing this for the first time. Because there is a sequence of their lovemaking that involves each of them performing oral sex on the other, it was like I was taking notes. The movie comes out in a crop of other movies, and I made some notes to sort of share with you that in the spring, well, the winter into the spring of 92, there was Hand That Rocks the Cradle, a very similar kind of a feel. Love Crimes, Final Analysis. But in May, we get really a favorite of mine from the early 90s, and that was One False Move. On top of that, when this movie came out, I know that it was often connected with the Oscar winner Silence of the Lambs. 
because of the way that it made queered characters monstrous. Right. Roxy, who is Catherine's lover, we watch them embrace, fondle each other's breasts, dance. They're seemingly very intimate with one another. And it's pointed out that Roxy likes to watch Catherine and her other partners. So scopophilia, fetishism, voyeurism are all attached to Roxy. Also, there's a meaningful moment when we first hear her speak. She comes down a stairway in Catherine's magnificent house. Her hair is down. She's wearing tight-fitting clothes. But she puts her hair up. And then when we finally regard her in a long shot... She's wearing boots, tight denim, cut-off shirt, and her hair up in a kind of a butch fashion. These signals, what we consider the queered woman, whether lesbian or not, get identified in this moment of the early 90s as an object of titillation and excitement, mm. and also something that pulls our heroine, Catherine Trammell, off of the beaten path. One final note, the rape scene, where Nick barges into Beth's apartment she wants him there. Right. They're definitely going to have the sex. Right. But he assaults her. She sort of resists. He flops her over a couch, and they finish together, but he's driving the whole experience, and she has said no. Right. I don't think that's sexually exciting anymore. And that's one area where this movie continues to be troublesome. It would have been much cooler if during his sex scene with Sharon Stone... When Michael Douglas ejaculated, his face did the same thing that Arnold Schwarzenegger's face did in Total Recall. With the bulging <laughs> eyes and then the... Ah. Boop-boopity-doo. 